Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for downloading The Tully Show. Before we begin, if I could ask you for one very small favor, can you please go to the following website and fill out a quick survey? It is short. It is easy. I promise you know all the answers to these questions off the top of your head. Survey.libsyn.com slash Tully Show. That is survey.libsyn, L-I-B. S-Y-N dot com slash Tully Show. One more time, survey.libsyn.com slash Tully Show. And now on to The Tully Show. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live. On tape during week 77 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a dazzling view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the City of Angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, all the way from Jerusalem, a writer whose opinion pieces have appeared in publications such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and more, and author of several books, including 2018's Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Hello and welcome, Yossi Klein-Halevi. Thank you, Mike. Great to be with you. You left out the LA Times. I used to be a regular contributor uh, to, to the Times. For me, the Times was the LA Times, not the New York Times. Oh, see, see, I'm, I'm, I'm a transplanted New Yorker. That's, that's sacrilege. When we're talking about <laughs> the times, there's only one, uh, one times. Now, I, I have never been a regular Los Angeles Times reader. It's just sort of a function of the world that we live in nowadays. That you can, you can move to a new place and still keep reading all the old newspapers you used to read elsewhere. I am also not a regular Jewish journal reader, not being a Jewish person myself, but by virtue of the fact, as you know, I live near the Pico Robertson neighborhood of Los Angeles. By virtue of living here, I go to a bunch of businesses that are Jewish owned or have a large Jewish clientele, and I see the Jewish journal, and I am inclined usually to look at the cover of it. And one time I saw a cover, and it was about your book, and it really, really struck me. Um, in my core, I am a, a, a can't we all just get along people kind of person. I'm a very cynical uh, radio and podcast personality, but at my core, I think I am a little bit of a hippie. And seeing this article about your book really stopped me in my tracks. And I, I picked it up and I took it home and I read the article. And this is uh, some time ago. I'm finally reaching out to you now. It struck me. It's, it's crazy how unusual a book like yours is. Yeah, you know, uh, just listening to you uh, describe describe the book, I, it's very much not a can't we all just get along book. No, it uh, it comes out of a place of deep acknowledgement of uh, the serious divides between Israelis and Palestinians, uh, Jews and Muslims today, uh, Israelis and the Arab world. These are really profound problems. And, and the temptation to say, well, can't we all just fix this and, and move along, doesn't work in the Middle East. And the reason it doesn't work is that both Jews and Arabs, Israelis and Palestinians, 
are so deeply invested in our stories, in our collective stories, that that we can't if 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 we let go of our histories, and this is true for both sides, uh, we we fear being adrift in 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 uh, in existentialist space. And uh, and the Middle East is not an, a a place for existentialist philosophers. It's a place for people who deeply value uh, a sense of belonging, who think of centuries uh, in terms of decades, who have an intimacy with their ancestors. Uh, and again, that's how Jews relate to, to history. It's also how Palestinians relate to history. And so what we're dealing with is a conflict that, yes, is about very specific problems today and how do we get through this and how do we work out a better future, but we can't just park the baggage of the past and say, well, that's over. That's a very American attitude. And maybe it works in America, although I'm not sure it even works in America anymore. How dare but you? it certainly certainly doesn't work in the Middle East. Right. And I got the sense from both your letters in the book and, and the letters that you received in return from your Palestinian neighbors that it's one thing to ask me to change my mind or change my value or my attitude towards something that means everything to me. But when you're talking about something that meant everything to my father and his father, and well, now you have people who are dug in and really can't change their mind. And this is how you end up with this sort of hopefully not, but seemingly intractable problem. Now, I want to confess at the top of this, I have a fairly embarrassing ignorance to the nuts and bolts of the Israeli-Palestinian issue. I can't be the only uh, person who's listening to this conversation right now who feels that way, just so we all kind of know where we stand. This is what I think I know. At this point in history, just about everyone, there's a fairly broad consensus for some sort of a two-state solution. Only the borders are really disputed that seemed close to happening perhaps in 2000 and we're probably further away now than we were in 2000 the ultimate question therefore is not so much about what is to be done the very basic framework of a solution that works for both sides seems to be out there somewhere it's more about how do we get there is that about accurate i think mike i think that's a great summary of how the conflict looks from abroad Okay, great. <laughs> That's why I want to talk to you. Yeah, from from within, uh, it looks very different. I don't believe we were mm. anywhere close in the year 2000 when uh, when President Clinton brought together Israeli Prime Minister Barack and Palestinian President Arafat uh, for a week of negotiations at Camp David, which were a total disaster. I don't believe that we're anywhere near close today. There is a broad consensus around a two-state solution, but it's not a true consensus. It's lip service. And all the politicians feel the need to say, yes, two-state solution. But most of the politicians, I think on, uh, on both sides, uh, don't really mean it uh, for, for, for two reasons. One is what we were talking about before, the place of history in, uh, and, and, and identity and indigenousness and belonging that is so crucial to both sides. Both sides feel that all of this little land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, which you can travel, uh, the width of this land you can, you can cross in about an hour, an hour and a half at its widest point. The length of, of the state of Israel 
from its southernmost tip all the way up to the Lebanon border uh, takes about eight hours. That's it. That's the country. And that includes the West Bank and Gaza. So what you're talking about is a geography that's so intimate in one of the most volatile and dangerous regions on the planet. We're on top of each other. No one trusts each other. We've had a hundred year war here. Think of uh, Yugoslavia, what happened in Yugoslavia. And you'll get some sense of, of the passions and the fears. So that's, that's one level of why we're, 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 we're nowhere near close because the geography is too intimate and the, the fears and the grievances are too deep. But there's another dimension here, which is that both sides deeply love every little piece of this little land. Look, I'm sitting here now in Jerusalem. I live at the very edge of Jerusalem. I write about that in my book. I'm literally the last row of houses in Jerusalem. I'm looking out onto the West Bank now, the lights of the West Bank. And I'm not looking into the distance. I'm looking at the next hill. It's a few hundred meters from where I'm sitting now. That's so striking to me. Every like America, you know, we have our issues with the 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 other, and you know, be it uh, Muslim immigrants or visitors, Mexican, Central American. But they're sort of abstractions. Most people don't have any close contact with them. That's one of the things that I think really struck me about the article that I that I read that you wrote in the Jewish Journal. You can literally see. I mean, you can you can hear activity. Oh, from oh absolutely! The West Bank. I hear the call to prayer on the next hill five times a day. Now that's crazy. From my porch, now I can look out at three political entities. The state, uh, the sovereign state of Israel, ends more or less outside of my porch. The Palestinian Authority is in the near distance, and in the farthest distance, about forty-five minutes drive from here, is the Kingdom of Jordan, and I and I can see the lights uh, in the distance now at night. It's it's nighttime here. I can look out and I can see the uh, the lights of Jordan. So I'm looking out at three political entities. And if the, Pal- if the Palestinian state is ever created, and I hope it will be, then that's going to be Palestine on the next hill. I will then be looking out at literally three countries, all within a driving distance of 45 minutes. And yet you are the only writer, at least to your knowledge, who has attempted the approach that you have with your with your book and with your work, which is to reach out directly, not politician to politician, but human to human, citizen to citizen? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, uh, this is a, uh, a unique experiment. And it was actually born through insomnia, as, uh, as, as, as many interesting creations are, I suspect. I would be sitting here late at night in my in my study, looking out at the lights of the Palestinian village on the next hill, listening periodically to the call to prayer coming through two in the morning, four thirty in the morning, and these long conversations in my head with my Palestinian neighbor, trying to explain who the Jews are, what we're doing here, why we came back home to this land, why we believe this land is also our home, a home that we share with the Palestinian people, two people sharing the same little piece of land, and ideas about how we might begin to solve this. 
And one night I sat down and found myself just writing, actually writing longhand, which is something that I never do anymore and nobody really does anymore. And uh, writing a letter, Dear Neighbor. And it very quickly turned into a book. And I, I'm actually a very slow writer. The book that I wrote before Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor uh, took me 11 years, full-time work. And this book just poured out of me. And I realized that I had been on some level writing this book for years and trying to speak to my neighbor. In this book, I lay out my understanding of Jewish identity, of the Israeli story, how Israelis experience this conflict. And I invited Palestinians to write to me their counter narrative. And I translated the book into Arabic, placed it online for free downloading, and set up a website in Arabic and, and in English. It's letters to my neighbor.com. And I began receiving letters in response. Some of them were, were angry. Some of them were hateful. Some of them were appreciative. Some of them were a combination of, of all of the above. We began a correspondence. And I got to know some of my neighbors. I invited people over for a Friday night, a Shabbat dinner. And I visited their homes. In the paperback edition that came out about a year and a half ago, uh, I published the epilogue of, uh, of Palestinian responses. 50 pages of Palestinian responses. So that the book now models really for the first time what it sounds like when Israelis and Palestinians respectfully disagree over irreconcilable narratives. For Palestinians, my presence here, and I don't mean me personally, although yes, also me personally, but the Jewish people's return to this land after 2000 years is illegitimate. What, you know, no, whoever heard of, 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 of a people returning after 2,000 years? And for us, our return here is the most natural expression of, of the essence of Jewish identity, which is our relationship to this land. There is no Jewish religion. There's no Jewish identity without this land. And so for us, it was the most natural thing in the world that Jews from 100 countries would, would respond to the call and come, as in our language, come home. But Palestinians, of course, see that very differently. And so I invited them to tell me their stories and how they experienced the occupation, how they experienced this drastic asymmetry in power. I have all the power. Palestinians have no power. That's part of the story. Another part of the story, from my perspective, is that it isn't just Israel and the Palestinians, it's been Israel against the entire Arab world and, and how that's impacted on, on our fears for survival and how it's impacted on our wariness of, uh, of creating a Palestinian state, our security fears. It's a very complicated story. And, uh, and so this is the story that I, I was trying to unpack and, and invited Palestinians to be my partners in telling their side of the story. Well, right. And there's all sorts of illegitimizing propaganda involved on, on both sides of, of this divide. You know, you mentioned the on, on the Palestinian side, the completely outlandish, you know, there never was a temple in Israel. The Holocaust is a hoax. But then on the other hand, on the Israeli side, well, 
there was no reference even in writing to a Palestinian people until 1900. So what is that? And I, and I say, well, tell an American who was fighting in the Civil War in 18. 18- 60 that they were not truly an American, but they were actually really some English guy when their country had existed for only 80 years at that point. It's very easy for me, from my perspective, to understand how even if you say Palestinian person, you know, uh, peoplehood only began 120 years ago, which is probably not the case. That's plenty of time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that the, the, the premise of this book is that we need to stop trying to delegitimize each other's stories. And my national identity is precious to me, and a Palestinian's national identity is precious to them. We need to stop playing this game where, where and I hear this all the time from Palestinians, people in the Arab world, uh, oh, the Jews, yeah, you're a religion. You're not a people. You know who I am better than I know myself. And, uh, and on the Israeli right, uh, there's a, a parallel uh, move where, where, where you tell the Palestinians, as, as you said, well, you're not a real people because 100 years ago, you just defined yourselves as part of the Arab nation and not a distinct Palestinian people. Their peoples have, have their own trajectories. National identities emerge in different ways. And once they emerge, no one can tell you that your story isn't legitimate. Of course, that's so much of, of, of the discourse around this conflict. And, and what I was hoping to do in this book is, is bring voices, my voice as, as, as an Israeli, and bring Palestinian voices in, all of us agreeing <clears throat> that the basis for solving this conflict is mutual acceptance of each other's right to our own stories. Then we can disagree. We can disagree about who's responsible for the failure of peace. We can disagree about about uh, whether the Jews should have come home or not. But at least let's all agree that that this land contains two stories, two very powerful national stories. In many ways, the story around your story is as powerful as the story itself. One of the things, again, that struck me about that article I initially read in the Jewish Journal is the story of the translator of your book, I guess maybe the second translator of your book into into right. Arabic, which to me perfectly illustrates the reason why you wrote the book and the challenges to success that a book like this and a project like this faces. What is that story? Well, uh, one day a... Um... A young, a young man, a young Palestinian came to my office uh, in, uh, at the Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, a think tank where I sit. And uh, he said, I read the translation uh, in Arabic that you, that you put up online. And then I got a hold of the original. I read the, I read the book in English. And I have to tell you, the Arabic translation is appalling. <laughs> and uh, he pulls out a few pages uh, in Arabic, and he said, "This is this is a sample of a translation that I did. Show this around, and uh, if uh, if you think it's good, I'll uh, I'll be happy to to retranslate the book." I showed it around. Uh, people were blown away, and people uh, Arabic speakers who who appreciated the quality, the literary quality. And this 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 young man was was not wasn't quite thirty. And uh, he'd never done anything like this before. And he's a, a terrific literary talent. I hired him. Uh, I got a grant 
to actually pay him. Uh, he produced a beautiful translation. And yet the, the, the translator, at least initially, and many of the letters that are in the book, and I imagine that are on your website, they still need, they can't be attributed to anyone. The authors still feel the need, even when they're respectfully disagreeing with you, even the fact that they're engaging with you, need don't don't just want, but need anonymity. Well, this is this is really the 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 dark side of this. Uh, the trans the translator who you may have noticed I did not name. Yes, and that's very deliberate. Uh, he's too fearful of uh, the response within Palestinian society for uh, fraternizing with Israelis, for engaging in quote normalization, uh, which is a taboo in much of Palestinian society, even though I know many Palestinians who deeply resent that taboo and who understand that the only way we're ever going to progress is if Palestinians can reassure Israelis that there really is a chance that if we withdraw from the West Bank, we will actually get peace in return. Right now, ask almost any Israeli, do you believe that if we create a West Bank state, that a two-state solution, that will bring peace. Almost any Israeli will tell you it will only result in more war and, and rockets falling on Tel Aviv. Just, and that's what happened when we withdrew from Gaza in 2005. The tens of thousands of, uh, of rockets fell on uh, Israeli neighborhoods after the withdrawal. And so there's a deep fear among Israelis about a pal creating a Palestinian state. And I tried to explain that in the book. Now, I mentioned earlier that I am deeply uh, in favor of a, of a Palestinian state for, for a very simple reason, not for their sake, for my sake. I do not want Israel to remain a permanent occupier of another people. That's not why the Jewish people returned home after thousands of years of the history that we carry. We, we expected things to be different when we came back. Maybe, maybe, they were, maybe we were naive, but we, we really believed, you know, the founders of this country, uh, this is a country that was founded by radical socialists, people who, who created the world's most successful voluntary communes. And, and this is a country that was founded on a utopian vision. And instead, we find ourselves in an increasingly unbearable situation. And so I want to extricate my people from the burden of an endless occupation. Uh, I was a soldier. My son was a soldier. We've experienced the occupation firsthand. We know what it does to the occupier. Now, I, I understand very well why the occupation continues. I share those same normative Israeli fears of a Palestinian state 500 meters from, from where I'm sitting. And uh, will I be able to live here if there's a Palestinian state on the next hill? Will I be able to physically maintain normal life? If, what if that state turns into another Gaza? What if, it, what if it's taken over by, by Hamas, by, by radical Islamists? I'll, I, I will be living on a, on a hostile border. So these are fears that, that we all carry here. But the argument that I'm trying to make in this book is that while we need to be very wary of Israel's place in a hostile region, we also need to be very wary 
of falling into the trap of being permanent occupiers. Well, right. As you as you say in, in the book, this issue is endlessly complex. You know, David and Goliath is a story so famous it transcends Jewish culture and, and scripture. You are the Goliath to the Palestinians, and you're the David to the Middle East. You're simultaneously yes. David and Goliath, and you need to navigate your way out of that. What an impossible, seemingly impossible problem. Yeah, and, and uh, I think that that the significance in the last months of these peace breakthroughs with the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, is, is really twofold. One is that these are the first real examples of normalization, not just a formal cold peace, which is what we've had with Jordan and Egypt, but a truly deep longing on both sides for human contact. There are now uh, business opportunities that are opening up. There are hundreds of business ventures, joint ventures that are being formed between Israel and the UAE. Uh, there are youth exchanges that are already beginning between our, our countries. We've never experienced this with the Arab world. And as a result of that, there's a, there's a, there's a very positive consequence, which is Israelis are starting to feel less besieged. And if you can reduce the Arab world, the Goliath of the Arab world against the Israeli David, and if the Arab world starts accepting Israel's legitimacy, we're only left with Goliath Israel against the Palestinian David, we might be able to start navigating our security fears. And we might be able to see this in, 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 in a different proportion. And, and I know that, it's, that that's what's happened to me in the last months. The fact that, that I now have Arab allies. I, I just recently joined a think tank in Abu Dhabi. I'm a, I'm a non-resident fellow of the Trends think tank. Now, if you would have told me five months ago, you know, in, in, in within a half a year, you're going to be invited to become a fellow in an Arab think tank. I would have said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> and five months later, I'm writing position papers for an Arab think tank. And so things are happening so quickly that I, I am now allowing myself to imagine that what was inconceivable only only recently, which is some kind of a renewal of the Palestinian-Israeli peace process, uh, really might be possible. I want to share an observation and just have you respond to it. It's an incredibly mundane observation, but it is at the very, very core of this. As a I'm a non-religious person, but I have a deep interest in religion. I've, I've probably read a little bit more about it than than the average bear. You have a and, and I love that you say that you think that, that at least the the part of this piece that you can um, contribute is centering the dialogue around God. Maybe it can't happen over politics. Maybe it can't happen over land. Focusing on God's oneness because obviously religious identity is at the core of of Israel and Jewishness. Of course, it's at the core of Palestinian and Arab identity as well. It is so frustrating for a non-religious person like myself to see two groups of people, and this would be Israel-Palestine and the Middle East in general, when your argument is rooted in God and 
there's absolutely no way that anyone in their right mind, Jewish or Palestinian, thinks this is God. This is how God wants them to act toward one another, and yet they do these things to one another and say these things to one another in God's name. Well, Mike, unfortunately, many people on both sides actually do think that this is how God wants them to behave. Uh, this is mine. Uh, God gave this to me, and you'll hear. You know, it's it's true uh, for for many Jews. It's true for many Palestinians, for many Muslims. Uh, God is on my side, and my God is actually on all of our sides. <laughs> you know, my <laughs> my God speaks many languages. He speaks Jewish. He speaks Muslim. He speaks Christian. Uh, he certainly speaks Hindu and Buddhist. Um, what I've tried to do in this book is write from the perspective of a Middle Easterner. And in the Middle East, religion is, is not just something that people believe. It's an integral part of your culture. Uh, so, for example, in America, if someone says to you, you know, if you ask, how are you? And somebody says, thank God. Oh, you know, when did you become religious? Right. Uh, in the Middle East, if you say uh, Baruch Hashem in Hebrew or Alhamdulillah in Arabic, thank God, that's just normative. Almost everyone says it. Secular, secular Israelis say it. Secular Palestinians say it. Uh, God is is um, God is just here, you know, in uh, not not even consciously. God is just part of 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 the air. And so, if you're going to try to make peace which is going to involve deep and painful concessions on both sides. The Palestinians are going to have to come to terms with the fact that the state of Israel is here to stay and that the state of Israel, which they see as part of historic Palestine, is not going to be part of a Palestinian state. And Israelis are going to have to get used to the fact that those parts of the land of Israel that the Palestinians call the West Bank, and we call Judea and Samaria. That is not going to be part of the state of Israel. That's going to be a Palestinian state. And so each side is going to have to make a very painful contraction of its, what I would call, its legitimate and natural claim to the totality of the land. And that's the tragedy of this conflict, is that both peoples can make a compelling claim for why the totality of this land belongs by right to them. And so to make peace, each side is going to have to accept a measure of injustice against their, their claim. Now, in order to accept that, you're going to need some framework, some, some, some way to legitimize these concessions. And my argument in this book is that religion gives us potentially, gives us that language uh, for elevating peace and human life and human dignity over the fullness of our territorial claim. These are two deep religious cultures that don't always show each other their best face. They show each other their hardest and most angry face. But internally, these are rich, humane, humane faiths. But they're not only humane faiths, they're complicated faiths. Uh, I think all religions have many faces. And it's our job to try to dredge up 
those elements from our from our respective faiths that will help us make those painful territorial concessions uh, and and give a religious justification for them. So that's that's the language. That's that's very that I, I'm really glad you picked up on that because for me that's that's one of the defining ways in which the conversation that I have with Palestinians as an Israeli Jew is very different than the kind of peace conversations that you have in in America or in Europe. What so in many ways your book is just sort of the opening volley of uh, of a tennis match. It's equally important is the second edition, the paperback, when you have all the responses. What are some of the most surprising responses you've gotten from your Palestinian neighbors? How has your understanding of the issue changed as a result of what you've heard back? And beyond the value of extending the olive branch and you know starting the dialogue, has anything come back? I mean, obviously, none of this is tangible. I guess I would say pragmatic, where you say, "Oh, I honestly didn't think of that. That's uh, that could be a piece of the solution." It's it's a great question, and I, I have to tell you in all honesty that someone who has been involved in this conflict for forty years now. I, mo- I I moved to Israel from from the U.S. in uh, 1982. Uh, I worked for many years as a journalist. I've served in the West Bank, in Gaza, in the army. Uh, I've been a reconciliation activist trying to organize people-to-people encounters uh, with Palestinian journalists and Israeli journalists and, and other, other frameworks. So what I'm trying to say is that, that there's not much that this point I can learn that I really haven't heard over the last 40 years. Uh, you can wake me up in the middle of the night and I can recite for you not only the Israeli narrative, but also the Palestinian narrative. I see. <laughs> and I think Palestinians who've been engaged in this debate can do the same for both sides. You know, we, 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 we're arguing over a fairly limited <laughs> set of premises and, uh, and, and, and we, we, we all kind of know the history. We, we know your argument, you know, my argument. It's, there's, unfortunately, there's not a lot of room for surprise anymore. But I, I didn't set out to learn something new or to convince the other side that my narrative is right. What I, and this is something I, I realized only recently. What I did set out to do, what I hoped would happen to me, was not that my narrative would change, not that my ideas would change, but that I would change. My, my being would change. That in encountering my Palestinian neighbor, I would not be able to feel the same way about this conflict, even if I still think the same way about the conflict. I still believe that the Jewish people had every right to return home, that we tried repeatedly to, to make a fair offer for peace. That narrative remains deeply in place for me. But what I now have in my head is the Palestinian counter-narrative. When you're in the middle of a, of a life and death conflict, and when you feel existentially threatened, it's very hard to open yourself to the other side. You, you're, you need to defend yourself. You need to protect yourself from the other side. The other side is trying to kill me. They're trying to kill my children. Right. And it doesn't get any more elemental than that. If we're ever going to try to to... to dig our way out of this hole, 
we're going to need to have each other's voices in our heads. And I've had some remarkable encounters that really uh, were mutually transformative in the sense that I'm speaking about. I'll give you I'll, I'll give you one example. Uh, how long has, has have we been under lockdown? When did Corona start? About a year ago? Uh, yeah, we're coming up on a year. I'd say March over here. March. So sometime before, in, you know, BC, before Corona, sometime before March, I, I got a, um, an email, an eight-page email from a guy who it turns out is a spokesperson for the Palestinian Authority. I didn't know that at the time when he sent me the email. And he writes to me the following. He says, congratulations to you. I read your book. Congratulations on a work of very successful propaganda. And he said, you and I both know that everything you wrote in there didn't happen. There was no temple in the Temple Mount. That's a lie. There was no ancient Jewish presence in this land. Uh, the Holocaust didn't happen, could not have happened the way the Jews say it did. Uh, maybe there were some, some unfortunate incidents, which always happen in war, but certainly not that. Uh, and he goes on like this for literally eight pages. And I'm getting more and more depressed as I'm reading. I finally come to the end. And he writes, and uh, in conclusion, I would be delighted to get together with you and continue this conversation. And I'm thinking, well, you know, like the last thing I want to do <laughs> is meet this guy and hear more of this in person. And I put the letter away. And then I thought again, I said, you know, I invited Palestinians to respond. This guy responded. He took the time. He gave me his honest, from his perspective, his honest critique. And I have no right to say, well, yes, I like that response. I didn't like that response. If you wrote to me in a spirit of engagement and respect, which he to some extent did, I have to honor that. So I invited him to lunch. We met in a Jerusalem restaurant. And it turned, as I mentioned, it turned out he, he worked for the Palestinian Authority. He brought with him a senior advisor to Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority. And I brought my son, Gabriel. <laughs> and so we sat, we had lunch, and it was, we talked for two hours, nonstop, passionate, animated. At the end of the two hours, he said to me, when I look into your eyes, I see a man of truth. And I was so touched by that because I think what he was really trying to tell me was I accused you of being a liar, of inventing this story. Now, everything that I've ever read in the Palestinian media, uh, in my own uh, understanding of this conflict, is the exact opposite of what you lay out in your book. But now I have a problem because having met you, I, I now realize that at the very least, you believe that these things happened. You believe there really was a Holocaust. You believe that Jews really lived in this land 2,000 years ago. And now I'm not sure what to do with that because now we're friends and now I have a certain trust for you. Where do we take this? Then Corona happened and we lost touch. But what we were planning to do was to set up a meeting where I would bring my some of my friends, he would bring some of his friends. That's an example of 
what I learned about peacemaking in this book. Never give up on someone. You never know. A guy who will send you eight pages of Holocaust denial can turn out to be a friend and a peacemaker. And it is possible to change ideas, but more deeply, you change your being. You're not going to, uh, as you say, you you both have a thorough working knowledge of each other's position. You're not going to change anyone's mind. You need to soften each other's hearts. That's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. I I I, I wish I had included that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say you say though you know you you you've been very familiar with their. Uh, side of things for as long as you can remember, but you've evolved quite a bit in your own time. I'm talking to somebody who wrote a book called Memoirs of a Jewish Extremist. So how have, (laughs) for for what reasons have you evolved and softened on this issue? Look, I grew up in uh, Brooklyn of the 1960s uh, in a neighborhood that's now become very famous or or infamous, uh, Borough Park, which is uh, Uh, the largest ultra-Orthodox Jewish neighborhood uh, in America. Uh, And when I was growing up, it was uh, mostly Holocaust survivors. My family, my father was a survivor. And that really shaped my own Jewish identity. And I grew up uh, a very angry uh, young Jew. I was angry at the whole world. Uh, You know, it's it's amazing to think now that when we're uh, over 70 years after the Holocaust, But when my generation was growing up, the Holocaust had just happened. It happened 15, 20 years earlier. And and I remember what happened 15 years ago. It's it's, it's pretty pretty contemporary. Um, And so uh, growing up in a Holocaust survivor family meant really growing up with the Holocaust as a a living force. It wasn't history. It It wasn't memory. Uh, it was it was something that you had to deal with, and the way that I dealt with it was in my in my teenager way was uh, to uh, find a political expression for my anger. So I gravitated to an organization called the Jewish Defense League, uh, which was uh, the militant expression of uh, I would say the Jewish equivalent. Uh, at least we saw ourselves that way of the Black Panthers or SDS, Students for Democratic Society. Uh, and uh, in, a, in a very angry and violent Jewish context, we were the first truly violent American Jewish organization in the history of you know, hundreds of years of American Jewry. Uh, and, we were, and, and it was our response to the Holocaust. Uh, and so what ended up, I would say, freeing me from that state of state of narrow state of consciousness. Uh, it's a long story, and that's really why I wrote that first book. It, it's it's the story of of um, gradually freeing myself from from that narrow place of anger and us versus them. But um, what I gradually began to realize was that I'm actually not my father's contemporary. My father belonged to the unluckiest generation of Jews in history. I belonged to the luckiest generation of Jews in history. I grew up in America of the 60s and 70s, the safest Jewish community in history, uh, with the state of Israel uh, a a plane ride away. 
And so for my generation, you know, we were the happy ever after of Jewish history. I began to realize that I need to own that, that success. The extraordinary Jewish success story was going from my father's generation to my generation, from, from going to the lowest point in Jewish history to one of the peak points in Jewish history. Uh, final question. Do you see a peaceful resolution to this situation at all on the horizon? Well, you know, we started this conversation by talking about the very long ancestral memories yeah. of uh Define of horizon however you like. Jews, exactly. <laughs> so on the immediate or if we're defining horizon in Western terms, no. No, that's too short a horizon. But sometime within this generation, within the next generation, let's put it this way. We don't have an infinite amount of time to get this right. The the kind of weaponry that exists today, the 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 intimacy of of the conflict, uh, the the global intimacy. You know, we're 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 in the middle of of humanity's first truly global experience, where everyone is going through the same experience, and everyone is aware of the fact that we're all going through it. We've never been in a situation. I mean, there have been plagues, of course before, but it was it was never with a global consciousness. And so the world is changing. And we're either here in the Middle East, we're either going to, to contribute to, to an evolving world, or we're going to self-destruct. And, and I think that what's true for us in the Middle East is true for humanity. And uh, so do I, do I believe in, in the human future? I do. Uh, partly because I'm a religious person and I believe this story actually has meaning. And uh, I believe that there is a God. Uh, that isn't necessarily an insurance policy because uh, I also believe that we can really screw this up. The, and it's up to us um, and not only up to God to get this right. Uh, but, I, I, but I do believe we're not alone in this. Uh, and that gives me some measure of comfort. And uh, And I also believe that Humanity is evolving. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, I think that this is a world that has been so profoundly transformed in ways that we take for granted too quickly. The fact that you and I are having this conversation face to face, which won't reflect on, on air, but we're, we're, I mean, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable moment in, in history. And, and the, the, the self-evident commonality of humanity, I think, is going to to really more and more shape the culture, and um, and so what I tried really, what I what I tried to do in this book is is present a a, a language. Palestinians and Israelis need a new language, and I'm not a politician. I'm not going to bring peace. I'm one person, but I'm a writer, and a writer's job is to create language, and so that's what I tried to do in the book. And um, if I wasn't on some level hopeful, I probably wouldn't have been able to write this book. So maybe that's my answer. Fair enough and well said. Well, I find it um, inspiring, the, the example, not only for you know your neck of the woods, but also for obviously situations all over the world, including the nation and society in which I currently live, the, the model of 
treating conflict with fairness and generosity is infinitely preferable to all the other options and it's probably also the best way so i, I really do appreciate this project and this undertaking of yours and i appreciate your time um yossi klein halevi the book is called letters to my palestinian neighbor thank you so much i'd so much enjoyed this conversation mike thank you